Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Genesis, the beginning. Genesis chapter 1. As we start our new series in Genesis 1 through 11, we're going to look at chapters 1 through 11. Uh, We're calling it the Eden story. And uh, I want to have you stand as we read God's word together from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. These are the words of our holy God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's pray. Our Father and Holy Lord, as we turn to your word, may the Spirit of God rest upon us. Help us to be steadfast in our hearing, in our speaking, in our believing, and in our living. Through Christ our Lord we pray, and amen. You can be seated. I want to begin this morning by emphasizing to you that my intention with this series is to accentuate the biblical theology of Genesis 1 through 11 as it pertains and lays the foundation for the rest of the Bible. And I'm not going to get too deep into the scientific debates surrounding Christian cosmology as it relates to other cosmological beliefs. Uh, When reading and studying Genesis, Christians are oftentimes caught up in the question of dinosaurs and Darwin, uh, or the fossil record and naturalistic evolution. To be clear, the threat of Darwinism still lingers and our culture continues to march itself over the cliff of despair and into the canyon of nihilism. So it is a problem. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't discuss those things. Indeed, we should. Uh, And I I do plan to at least make certain applications along the way, which will invariably deal with some of these worldview issues. However, this is not the primary aim of the series, and I would unfeignedly and heartedly heartily point you to the Ministry of Answers in Genesis uh, if you want to know more about those aspects of the debate. Uh, They have a ton of wonderful resources. Uh, We have mounds of their material in our home, (laughs) so uh, pretty much anything you can find from them, it's going to be worth your time. Uh, And they cover a wide range of topics, uh, so make sure that you earmark Answers in Genesis uh, for, for another time. At any rate, the goal of this series, titled The Eden Story, is to tie together certain themes with the whole of the Bible, hence the term biblical theology, and based on those foundational items, examine our call to faithfulness in every area of life. From Genesis 1 verse 1 onward, we have the establishment of the kingdom of God in the universe, with the earth being the central focus The earth is the central focus of God's kingdom activities. Included in the kingdom is the fact that man is the crown of God's creation plan. Man, uh, the earth is the central focus. Man is the central focus on this earth. The the Bible, being God's self-disclosing word revelation, explains the contour of reality. It tells us all about reality, the multifaceted shape of our day-to-day experience, And it does so in terms of its orientation to God. In the beginning, God. Everything is oriented to God and stems from Him. All of life, you might say it this way, all of life is situated within the context of God's own existence. Stated differently, uh, what we wake up and do each and every day, uh, both in our naive, passive experience, we just sort of wake up and unconsciously do things, 
and when we have theoretical or active scientific inquiry, we're not just passively doing things, we're actively thinking about the world, we're actively you know, planning our budget, doing our finances, we're actively engaged in those things. But when we, when we, when we do all of those, all of it is to be anchored to a covenantal paradigm which is set forth in Genesis 1.1. It's a covenantal paradigm we see from the very first verse in Holy Scripture. Now, the Bible isn't just a book of stories to think about. Sometimes it's reduced to that, but it's not just a book of stories that we should just think about and, oh, wasn't that a fun story, and then move on with our lives. God's inscripturated word lays out patterns and structures through which we live and move and have our being. God's word, his inscripturated word, tells us that there are patterns, there are structures to our lives, who we are, what our families are called to be, how the world is structured. It tells us all of that. Let me say it differently. It doesn't just tell us what to think, but also how to think. The Bible doesn't just tell us what to think, although it does include some of those things, but it teaches us how to think, how to perceive the world, how to perceive ourselves, how, how, to, how to navigate every area of life. It's not simply pondering theological concepts, as important as it is to know those things. Rather, it gives us an interpretive grid by which and through which all of life is to be understood. The Bible isn't one story among other true and viable options that are all for sale on the theological market. Ah, you know, a little bit of Confucius, a little bit of Buddha, you know, a little bit, maybe a little bit of Bible. There's some truth there. There's truth in the Quran, and we sort of just a la carte the whole thing. The Bible isn't just one story among others. Instead, the Bible is the story of reality. It is the story of reality. And any other explanation that is out there in the market, in the Agora, must first deal with this audacious truth. And, and many Christians get this wrong. Oh, well, the Bible, it's just it's inspiring. Just read the stories. They're fun. No, it is God's self-revelation. It's his word. We shouldn't treat it like it's just one option among others. It claims something about the world. It claims something about God. It claims something about creation and man. And we shouldn't, you know, try to make that more palatable for people. It is the story. Uh, C.S. Lewis put it well. You've probably heard this quote before. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Which is to say, for the Christian, the world and all of reality is what it is because God is who he is. The creator, the sustainer, the provider, the governor, the savior, he is the source of all things. Scripture, as Bavink intimates, doesn't argue for God. The scripture isn't arguing for God. He simply presents the God who is there. Let's look at our text here. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. One verse for today. The rest of the chapter next week, Lord willing. But Genesis 1.1 sets the stage for all of life being in covenantal relationship with the triune God. All of life is in covenantal relationship with the triune God. It doesn't list rational arguments or, or spell out philosophical platitudes uh, it doesn't even give us scientific formulations either. Uh, we don't have the periodic table just told, yeah, here's, here's what matter is composed of, and, and this, is, 
the gravity, and this is, you know, all these scientific things. We have none of that. The Bible opens by telling us simply what is. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Not a question, not a suggestion. It is a truth claim. In the beginning, this is what happened. We have, in this one verse, the presentation of four important things. First, we have the beginning, that is, the establishment of time. This is the establishment of time. We'll talk about time a little bit in a second. But that's the first thing we have. In the beginning, that is the, that's the introduction of time into our reality. The second, we have the subject, that is the self-existent, totally sovereign creator God. So we have time, and then we have the subject, who is God. In the beginning, God. The third thing we have, we have the miraculous action i.e. creation out of nothing, creatio ex nihilio in the Latin, meaning when we say, by the way, and it's important to know, when we say creation out of nothing, we mean that God used no pre-existent material. Some of the Greeks, Greek um, philosophers, and many of them believe that matter was eternal, and we're going to talk about that, but they, they thought that, oh, well, if, God, if the gods made the world, then they just had to use what was available to them, to them, and that was clearly the periodic table. We have none of that here. God used nothing but his own power to create. No pre, pre-existent material, no uh, you know, carbon and all these things floating in this vast space that somehow got there and then collided, and we call it the Big Bang. No pre-existing material existed. Nothing. Creation out of nothing. That's the third thing. The fourth thing, we have the object of creation, that is heaven and earth. We have the establishment of space, the establishment of space. So time, the subject being God, we have creation out of nothing. The Hebrew word bara there in the first verse is literally out of nothing. David uses it in Psalm 51 when he asks God to create in him a clean heart. Created me out of nothing by the power of your word, a clean and new heart. And fourth, we have the establishment of space. So this is the very first verse in the very first book of Holy Scripture. The first verse in the very first book. Time, space, and matter brought forth by the sovereign will of a sovereign God. Time... Time gives successive moments of existence and being. That's why I don't believe in time travel. Side note. We, we have successive states of being, and you can't undo that. Your being is limited to time and space. Uh, it's a fun thing to think about. I mean, you know, what would you do if you could go back in time? And, I, you know, everything from predict the lottery correct to change, changing the course of events, you know. But time, time gives us successive moments of, of being, of existence, who we are. Now, space makes things spread out in said existence. So you and I exist in a literal physical body made up of a whole lot of things, but we're limited to one space. Oh, to be able to be in multiple places at multiple times. But alas, we cannot. Time and space re- prevent that from happening. So time and space were brought forth together at the same time, at the same beginning. Augustine was a stark stark defender of this when there were lots of theories about how time came into being and, 
you know, even when we describe God as eternal, we're assigning time to him, which is a finite concept. And so we get into a whole lot of philosophical stuff there. But both time and space were brought forth at the, at the same time, the same beginning. Time carries space along in terms of God's law word. Space hosts time in terms of God's purposes. Time is interwoven with every aspect of spatial existence. So they go together. We, we get older, our bodies change, uh, th things are different, and yet they're the same. You are the same person that you were you know, 18 years ago, 20 years ago, five years ago, but you changed. Interesting concepts to go forth. Psalm 33.6 says this, By the word of Yahweh the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. The power and energy of life is presented here in the opening verse as coming from God's word and God's will. Even the concepts of power and energy, we only think of them usually in terms of our experience. But in God, power and energy is something that is simply who he is. He is the all-powerful one. But human knowledge connected to this, if it's to be true knowledge, can only be so when it rests on this first principle. God created all things. If you try to assert knowledge apart from that, you are asserting things falsely. Psalm 33.9 adds this, For He spoke, and it was. He commanded, and it stood. Because of this, God the Creator is also the owner. He's not only the Creator, He's the owner. He didn't create and then pass it off to somebody else. He is the owner of all things. It was his counsel, his purpose, his work that brought all things to its state of being. So all things belong to him because of his creative handiwork. Uh, when, when God's wise counsel issues a decree, it forever remains in force. When the triune God decides to do something, you cannot manipulate it. You cannot change it. God is immutable. When he decides, he enforces and it cannot be upended by man. So God is the source of all things that exist. That's Genesis 1.1. He is the source of all things that exist. All things are derived from him. You think of the periodic table, you think of oxygen, you think of mercury, you think of all of the things that we experience in this world. Um, all of it comes from him. It's derived from him and not only is it derived from him, as a result of that, all things are subject to him. The periodic table obeys King Jesus. Time and space obey King Jesus. So his, his all-encompassing government and predestination makes him the lawgiver and the upholder of all things. He spoke it. It exists the way it exists. Trees function the way they do. They, they grow a certain way. Um, air flows the way it flows, the water moves the way it moves. God said all of these things by His law. You can look at uh, Psalm 19 later for the, that connection. But He's the lawgiver, and thus He is also the upholder of everything. He is the upholder of everything. But you might have a question. Kids might have this question. But what was going on before the beginning? What was happening before all of this? Some people will say, well, who created God? Well, if God is created, he's a terrible God. God is the uncreated being. 
But what was going on before the beginning? Well, here's a few things to consider. We learned from John 17, verse 5, that Jesus possessed glory with the Father before the world existed. We also know from John 17, 24, that the Father loved the Son before the foundation of the world. That phrase is used a few times in Scripture, by the way. You can see it in the book of Revelation and other places. But before the foundation of the world, what was going on? Well, there was a mutual indwelling of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The covenant of redemption, what theologians call the covenant of redemption, precedes Genesis 1.1, meaning this, before the world existed, a covenant was made with the triune persons to make all things and then send the Son to redeem all things once sin entered into it. The triune Godhead willed for the Father to elect by grace, the Son to pay their debt, with his atonement, and for the Spirit to go forth and apply all of those benefits to us. You can see Ephesians 1.4, Philippians 2, 1 Peter 1, verse 20, and Revelation 5.9. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, is an echo of Genesis 1.1, and you can hear it in the very first phrase, in the beginning. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, that is, through Jesus, Jesus the Word, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So no matter what you can conjure up in your mind about the world, what, what, what got here by our doing, other than we taking raw material and building houses? I mean, that, that's still material that was here. We didn't make that. None of you were creative enough to come up with steel and aluminum, right? Um, we had to use it as God's creating creatures. We had to use it, and thus we had to glorify God with it. But Jesus Christ, he is the incarnate word. He stands as the mediator for God's plan of creation. He is the go-between. He is the mediator for what God intends to do with creation. While we can say that all three persons of the Trinity were present at the creation, we'll note that next week, it was the Christ, it was Christ, he's the divine speech, he's the logos, he's the creation, uh, the, the vehicle of creation, he's the wisdom of God, he is the one who spoke the world into being. He is the one who spoke the world into being. Nothing was made apart from Christ's pre-incarnate command. Proverbs 3.19 asserts, Yahweh by wisdom found the earth. By discernment, he established the heavens. Furthermore, we find that God's creative power in making all things, I mentioned this earlier, his creative power was creatio ex nihilio. That is creation out of nothing, no pre-existent materials. It's not blind chance. Um, it's not impersonal evolution that created and governs all things, but the almighty hand of the triune God. Um, people are very happy to believe that anything and everything could have happened except for the fact that God created. Now, in this instance, I mentioned this earlier, matter itself is not eternal, like some of the Greeks, like Plato, believed. Um, matter is not eternal. They looked at the world and thought, well, it was here before I got here, and it's probably still going to be here when I'm long gone, so it must be just here. The world is eternal, matter is eternal. And that's not the case. Um, for example, Thales, he was considered the first philosopher pre-Socrates. He believed that everything was water. 
That was his theory. We're made up of water. There's water on the earth. Everything's water. Everything, everything can be reduced down to this view that everything is water. Um, Pythagoras, he uh, later Descartes did this too, but he believed everything was number and mathematics. We can reduce creation down to just number. It's just simple math formula. We put this and this, input, output, it's math. Um, Anaximenes, uh, he believed that everything was air. You had a lot of people uh, believing it was, it's air, it's earth, it's fire, it's light. Um, it's all sorts of things. But think about it for a moment. Non-Christian metaphysical beliefs in the ancient world believed that matter was eternal, matter is unlimited, and thus it's impersonal. The world is just impersonal. It's a cold, dark place. Suck it up. That was the belief. Man is simply here as a result of impersonal fate. Uh, we're, just, we're just here with this ever-changing flux of chance and possibility. You know, that's just the world we live in. But in the Christian world and life view, there is no matter or substance that exists eternally next to God. It's not like, well, God is eternal and he's just there. And then, oh, well, there happens to be something beside him that's eternal as well. God and God alone exists for eternity. What was happening before creation? God was existing sufficiently in and of himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this eternal God created matter with the beginning. He created matter with the beginning. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God, Psalm 90, verse 2 says. Now with this in mind, we need to remember that creation's ontology, its being, its existence, implies a providential guidance from this creator. We look at the world, we see what it is, and we realize there is something going on here. The, the sun does its thing, and the seasons change, the leaves fall off, and none of us freak out about it every fall. Like, oh no, they're gone forever. We know they're coming back. We know that something is going to work because we've, we've seen it, we've experienced it. But what we, what we have to do is remember that God is providentially guiding these things. He formed the world not to exist on its own, but rather to exist by and through and with His counsel and will. You'll remember Romans eleven thirty six 36 testifies, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. For from Him and to Him and through Him are all things. As the owner who creates all fact, there is no brute factuality, meaning that facts are detached from God. They're just hanging in the world under their own volition. Um, if you can ever stand it to watch Bill Nye, the science guy, say things. <laughs> His debate with Ken Ham, it's just excruciating. Um, but, oh, they're just fact. It's just fact. You, you hear them all the time. If you really want to give yourself a headache, um, watch Ken Ham give him the tour of the ark. Oh, it's painful. They can't even get through one exhibit without Bill Nye just, you know, fire hosing him. It's crazy. But that's, that's, what the, that's what people who don't believe in creation do. Well, it's just a fact. It's just a fact that the clouds do what they do. It's just a fact that rain comes. And, you know, it's just a fact that if you plant a seed, it's going to sprout. And they like to take facts and detach them from the God who gives them. And we can't let that happen. The creation isn't wound up like a watch and then it's left to its own devices. That would be Thomas Jefferson's God. 
But our world is actively sustained by God. It's actively sustained by him. Um, He's actively sustaining you every single day. Your heart beats. You're breathing his air. He is sustaining you. Truth, then, is that which corresponds and that which coincides with the mind of God. Um, never, never forget that, because people who reject the truth of Christ don't know how to define truth. Truth is that which corresponds and coincides with the mind of God. Truth is simply God's thoughts, and he doesn't tell us all of his thoughts, because his ways are not our ways, and his thoughts aren't our thoughts, Isaiah says. So nothing in creation can be credited with generating its own existence. Even, even the kids here, right? You might think, wow, my parents are so lucky that I'm here because I did this. <laughs> you didn't. <laughs> no one did that. Uh, we were there. We saw it go down. It, it, we understand how this process works. You didn't bring yourself into existence. You didn't will yourself into existence. What, did, what do you have that you have not received? So the universe is bound to the law of God, and thus all facts, all truth, all of reality is exhaustively interpreted by God, and it's anchored to God. God dictates all truth absolutely. This is Christian presuppositionalism one-on-one. When you deal with the unbelieving world, the very first point is we're all swimming in God's ocean. We are breathing God's air. We are interpreting things because God allows us to. Even our minds function a certain way because God says it. We just are in this world and God put it here. Everything corresponds to him. Finally, the question of why God created sits before us here. Before we back out and apply this, we look at Genesis 1.1. Why did, why did God create? Why did God create? Well, we can ask it this way. What is it that motivated the eternal, unchanging, all-knowing sovereign to create the world and then fill the world? What motivated him? Well, Revelation 4.11 tells us, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. So in one sense, we can answer that question by simply saying, well, God willed it. Kids, if you ever wonder, why did God create? He wanted to. He willed it to happen. What is it that motivated God to do it? It wasn't anything outside of him that existed, so it wasn't an external pressure that moved him to then create. Why did God create? He he is totally free, um, and thus his desire, his counsel, and his will is what created us. The King James Version says it this way of, of Revelation 4.11, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. The word pleasure, the word will in the LSB, they go together. It was his, he saw it was good to do it, so he wanted to do it. it was, the, the basic answer is God's pleasure and will. That's why. Why? God is God who is goodness sought to be good. God who is perfect and all-knowing created all things for his own pleasure, his own purposes, his own good. Isaiah 43, 7 says that he did it for his glory. He created all things, you and I, for his glory. No one forced his hand, extorted his will, or informed his counsel. In his own self-sufficiency, in consultation with wisdom, that is Christ, 
Job speaks of this, as does Proverbs 8. In his own consultation, God took counsel with himself. He created for his own honor, his own love. He didn't do it because he lacked something. He didn't do it because he needed something. God is always at rest. He's always at peace with himself. God is always, the, he, he's always in himself the highest good, the greatest joy. He, he doesn't need to worry about what else is going on. He is the highest good. He is the greatest joy. He created the world because he desired to put his glory on display. And the world thus is a mirror. We're going to talk some about that in the next couple of chapters. But he created the world for his own glory, but he did it because it is a mirror. The creation is a mirror that's supposed to reflect his glory. He wants men to share in God's blessedness and holiness. Heaven and earth were made together. And you should know that they were made for each other. God made them in order to fill them with his glory. Isaiah 40, 22 illustrates this. It is he who inhabits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. It is he who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to inhabit. Why did God create the heavens and the earth? To inhabit them. For his glory to be manifested in them. So that's Genesis 1.1. How shall we then live? There are three things I want to deal with here in this opening message of our series. These are three concepts that are absolutely foundational to your life in God's integral world. I'm going to list them and then explain them. They are, first, the concept of absolute personality. This is going to be an exercise in presuppositionalism today. The first is absolute personality, or you can parentheses say personalism. And if you want to understand our culture today, you've got to have this part down. Absolute personality. That's number one. Number two is simply the creator-creature distinction. So we're going to talk about absolute personality, what that means, and then we're going to talk about the creator-creature distinction Uh, foundational to Van Til's thought, foundational to Reformed theology, foundational to Scripture. I mean, Romans 1 teaches it, among other places. So we have absolute personality. Number two, the creator-creature distinction. And number three, unity and diversity. Now, you might look at this and think, wow, this this is heavy. I don't know what to do with this. Well, let me tell you, this is what mankind has wrestled with since the beginning. This is what Plato and Aristotle got wrong. This is what even Thomas Aquinas thinks he got wrong. This is stuff that the reformers fought for. And this is stuff that we need to fight for today in in the world. So let's begin with this doctrine, this philosophy, what's called personalism or absolute personality. God is personal. God is absolute. Those things are true. He is both of those things. Being absolute, God is completely self-contained. He is self-contained. Nothing eternal exists before him or above him. Nothing exists eternally beside him. What was going on before the creation of the world? God. That's it. In his own space as a spirit, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In perfect love, perfect harmony, uh, perfect um, in all ways. So nothing rivals him. 
Nothing is more basic than him. Nothing is more consequential or fundamental than him. We're here today because God. First and foremost, that's the motivating factor of all of life. God. He is absolute. He is personal. He is ase. The Latin phrase ase or the aseity of God means that he is from himself. He is from himself. He is what he is through or by his own being. All that is God, he is of himself. Um, being is his own being. He's not dependent on anything or anyone else. Um, when you have the God of Islam, Allah, you have a monad. You have one God, not three persons. One God, one person who needs creation to exist in order to somehow display himself. That's a dysfunctional God. It's one of the foundational problems with Islam. But not in Christianity. God is self-contained in who he is. He doesn't need anybody else. He is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He has unity and diversity. We're going to come to that. He has it in and of who he is, in and of himself. So he's not dependent on anything. He doesn't need anyone. And no one can give him something that he doesn't already possess. He's completely self-sufficient. So he's defined by himself. He's not defined by us. He's defined by himself, not by anyone else. He exists independently and perfectly apart from creation. Key note there, he exists perfectly apart from creation. Um, Allah does not. Our God doesn't change. He is uncaused. He is whole and he is simple. He is self-existent, self-sufficient, and self-contained. God is personal in that he performs the actions of knowing, thinking, speaking, and loving, and planning, and acting, and judging, and moving. So when we say God is absolute, he is who he is in and of himself. When we say he has personality, he acts, he moves, he loves, he judges, he participates, he plans, he moves in history. So biblical personalism stems from the Trinity. The, the, there is one God, there is three persons. Each of them, of each person is personal. Um, the Father exercises personality. The Son exercises personality. The Spirit exercises personality. They themselves are completely coherent in themselves, and they, they exhibit, they, they move, they judge, they act. They do things. So God is personal. He possesses personality, and he thus has character. God has character, and he defines character in and of himself. So he is self-conscious. He's morally active. He is intellectually vigorous and good. That's why it's a horrible belief to think that God had to look down the halls of time to see what would happen. That is a major deficiency in God. If he has to go searching for information, that is a massive problem, a major breakdown in Christian theology. That's what makes Pelagianism and even Arminianism so terrible. <laughs> now, the evolutionary worldview, that's what we swim in today, the evolutionary worldview denies personality. Because science has been, been elevated to divine status, everything is reduced down or absolutized to matter and motion and brain fizz. You know, who are your ancestors? I don't know. They couldn't talk. You know, th th that's what the evolutionary worldview teaches, this, this reducing everything down to the biotic or the, or the physical aspect of life. Curiously, nature, sometimes, you've heard it, 
Has she been called Mother Nature? Creation personalized, ironically. Sometimes nature is given personality. Apparently nature can fight back with climate change. Nature can fight back with mudslides or even hurricanes. Uh, a video went viral of, of Ellen DeGeneres. Oh, Mother Nature, there was mudslides in the background in California. Mother Nature is angry with us. We are not doing what we're supposed to be doing. We're not taking care of her, and she's fighting back. And you just look at it, like, we are in clown world. And she's the clown leader. But that's the worldview. We've come from apes, and we're just brain fizz and chemicals. But that has personality. Mother Nature is out there. You see, modern, modern people today, modernists, they want ethics, they want love, they want beauty, and they plaster it everywhere, right, especially during the month of June, but they want it from an impersonal, inanimate world. Thus, man is an evolutionary machine. Now, that leads to two things, two basic outcomes. First, you have pantheism. That has the absolute, but it has no personality. That's Hinduism, Kabbalistic, um, Kabbalistic uh, uh, Judaism, Taoism. Um, so they have an absolute thing going on. Every, God is in everything, but there's no personality. Um, second, you have polytheism, like the Greek and Roman gods. You go to Virginia Beach, you see the giant statue of Jupiter, the, the Roman god. <laughs> We're not religious. Okay. Polytheism desires personality. We want different, the Greek gods had all sorts of personalities. Different gods of love and, and all of these other gods that were participated in other, in other ways. They, they want personality, but they can't claim the absolute. Why? Because there's so many of them. None of them are absolute. Only the triune God of the Bible provides a balance for both the absolute and the personality, and neither of which takes priority over the other. So in this paradigm, God's character is holy, his character is good, his character is pure, and because of this intrinsically qualified nature of being, the universe can thus have structure. The universe has meaning. The universe has purpose. And God's law is not arbitrary. His law is not arbitrary, just like everything else is arbitrary in the evolutionary thinking. God's law is the normative structure of the world. Things are the way they are because God commands them to be so. And it's good. Things are good because God says that they're good. Things are beautiful because God says they're beautiful. Things are true because God gives truth, and he is truth. Now Darwin, Darwin saw an impersonal world with all of this unstructured chaos, unpredictability. There's this force of nature, oftentimes referred to, that dehumanized our existence, and thus it destroyed any coherence within creation. When, this is mind-boggling. But when you tell people they came from apes, we shouldn't be surprised when they start acting like apes. The public school system is wrought with this. You just came from apes. Oh, so life has no meaning? Great. Let's see what I can do next. And then we're shocked when things happen. That's what you've told them. You've told them you live in an impersonal world and you really don't matter. You're not made in the image of God. Your, grandcestor, your ancestors, your grandparents, invented a new word, grandcestors. I like that, actually. <laughs> your, your, your apecestors. <laughs> All of them were, 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 who knows, somewhere, um, you know, finding food out in the wilderness and struggling to exist. 
If that's what you tell people, what do you think is going to happen? But to the contrary, Christianity teaches otherwise. So that's absolute personality. You have to know that the world exists from God who is absolute, and he has a personality. So things can be true and good and beautiful. The second thing is the biblical doctrine of creature, the creator-creature distinction. And I'll tell you this, this is the most important and foundational piece of knowledge for, for man. If you get this wrong, you get everything else wrong. When we read, when we read Genesis 1.1, we realize that there are two fundamental modes of being and types of existence in God's world. We have God's existence. God's existence is self-contained, it's immutable, it's unchangeable. And then there's the existence of creation. So Genesis 1.1, right there. We have God who exists on his own being, and creation, which exists in a different mode of being. Um, Van Til said it this way. He said, so I point out that the Bible does contain a theory of reality, and this theory of reality is of two levels of being. First, of God as infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and second, the universe as derivative, finite, temporal, and changeable. He goes on, a position is best known by its most basic differentiation. The meaning of all the words, all words in the Christian theory of being depend upon the differentiation between the self-contained God and the creating, created universe. That is to say, knowledge and experience are tied up in this distinction. God exists. That is one mode of existence. And that is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. In the beginning, God. That is God. Whereas creation's existence, including man, is derivative, he says, finite, um, temporal, and changeable. So today's scientism, and by the way, if the last two years didn't teach you anything, it should have taught you we live in a scientific cult world. Scientism believes that everything is one. That's a monastic view of the world, a monist view of the world. But that's an, it's intelligible. You can't live consistently in the world of scientism. Now, related to this, we talk in Scripture about transcendence and imminence. God is transcendent, meaning that he, he's to be regarded as entirely distinct from creation. But the Bible teaches that he's also the ultimate authority in the universe. God is distinct. He is authority. Now, an unbiblical perspective, there are Christians today who believe this, but an unbiblical perspective would conclude that, well, God's not really present in the world. Because if he's present, look at all the evil that's going on. Why is he not? He should be doing something, right? And that's, that's the deist version of God. So he is transcendent and distinct, but he's also imminent. He is covenantally present in creation. God does participate in the world. He's not completely identified with it. You know, none of you should walk up to the door and say, hello, God, as, as if God were to be identified with the door. He's not identified with it, but he is present in creation. Now, an unbiblical perspective would think that God and the world are indistinguishable, right? That's pantheism. We don't know who God is, but he's everywhere. All is God. Everything's God. He's in you. He's in me. He's in the floor. He's everywhere. But that's, that's the scientific scientism that we have in our culture today. But God is transcendent. He's imminent. He is both. He is distinct, yet he's present. And we can know God, and thus we can know ourselves, because he has bound himself to us by covenant. And all, all non-Christian thought mixes this stuff into rank heresy. 
So that's the creator-creature distinction. You have to hold tightly to that. And part of the reason is because we have a culture that does not want anything to do with that. And if we want to win hearts and minds, we have to teach them the difference between the creator and the creation. The third and final thing is the, the relationship between unity, unity and diversity. I'm going to get a little philosophical for a second. All philosophical study and inquiry stems from this most basic understanding. Is everything one or is everything many? Now, you might not tomorrow worry yourself about it, right? None of you are pouring yourself a cup of coffee. I don't know if this is unity or diversity, and now I'm stressed out about it. And you may not stress yourself out about it because you, you, know, you have God as your father, and that's okay. But there are people who spend a lot of time and energy on this question, all the way back to the Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. Those guys, they, they really did. They thought, is everything one or many? What's the relationship between singularity and diversity? Look around the room. All of us were one person. And then you look around and say, oh, there are other people here. What's the relationship between that? What, what is, what's the, what's, uh, the relationship between the particular and the general? You know, this tree out here is wholly unlike the billions of other trees. Snowflakes, apparently, they all look the same. But upon closer investigation, they're all different. What is this relationship? Well, if you're not a Christian, this is an unbridgeable chasm. You are going to be stressed out pouring your coffee tomorrow morning. And you live in existential crisis. Like, tell the college students that. It's fun. You live in existential crisis. You just don't know it yet. Let me help you understand. <laughs> but the Bible teaches God is, is both one and many. Um, Van Til said it this way. He said, unity in God is no more fundamental than diversity. And diversity in God is no more fun fundamental than unity. The persons of the Trinity are mutually exhaustive of one another. Which is to say... Christian doctrine built on the nature and character of God says that unity and diversity are perfectly coherent only in terms of God. Why does your life matter? And why does the person across the room, why does his or her life matter too? You're different people. Wouldn't, if we live in an impersonal universe, your life matter more than theirs? And shouldn't you be able to decide that your life is far more important than theirs for X, Y, and Z? Why not? People do that all the time. They think their, their life is more important. We call it selfishness, which is a sin. What's the relationship between us as people, collectively, individually, as the body of Christ worldwide, universally, but also we are a smaller segment of that body of Christ here in Warrenton? What's the relationship? It's, it's the Trinity. The Trinity is the only thing that sorts it all out. The diversity we see in the human body. You think about, none of you are walking around saying, hi, my name is Jason, and I'm composed of a liver, two lungs, a bladder, two legs, right? You don't think of yourself as a diversity. You think of yourselves as, as a unity. But there's a lot going on in your body. The change of seasons, the, think of the components of a car. You, you drive a car. It has a whole lot of a whole lot, you ever see the, the, when they blow out all the parts and you see all the millions of parts that go into this and none of your, I drive a vehicle, also known as a thing that has four wheels and a combustion engine, 
um, and it has a steering wheel thing where you can turn. And none of you spend the next hour describing your vehicle in terms of what it is, what it consists of. No, it's, it's a car. We kind of know. That's, that's the unity and diversity in creation. So all things are only unified and diversified in terms of its relationship to Genesis 1.1. Now, let me close here. Another, another couple of minutes. The most fundamental reality of our existence in this world is the triune God. When you read the phrase, in the beginning God, that is the most fundamental truth. A loving, absolute, personal unity and diversity. That's the most fundamental reality, the fundamental truth. Reality, then, is only intelligible when we have the Christian world and life view. It's only intelligible. You can't explain the various aspects of life. You think of mathematics and physics and, 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 and logic. You can't explain history, uh, the social aspect of life, you know, the aesthetic. Beauty, what is beauty? How would you define beauty? You can't define any of it. The ethical, the faith, you can't define this world in terms of itself. You can't reduce the diversity of our human experience on earth down to one aspect of human existence. You just can't. Every non-Christian philosophy collapses on itself because it cannot account for all of the multifaceted diversity of the world, the unity that brings it all together, and the transcendence of God that makes it possible. How would you answer the question if an unbeliever comes up to you and says, what is this life? How do you describe it? Would you say, well, everything is just number. You're one number, I'm another number. Good luck. You know, or would you go the Karl Marx route? Everything is an economic struggle in history, so you got to kill the rich people so that you can be rich, and then create another poor class, and then on and on you go. What is life? It's life in God's world in terms of God. He makes it possible. As we think about our, our series, I wanted to just kind of lay it out, the presuppositional foundation today. Here's probably the main point. <clears throat> out of all of this. Man cannot and must not attempt to posit some sort of existence outside of the truth of what we have here in Genesis 1.1. I mean, you know, what's your favorite Bible verse? It could be a, who knows, there's tons of them to pick from. But Genesis 1.1 is the most consequential. If you get Genesis 1.1 wrong, you get everything else wrong. And when, when man tries to try, when he tries to exist outside of what we see here, it's suicidal. God doesn't simply allow the world to exist. He makes it exist. He doesn't simply allow your heart to continue beating right this very second. He makes it happen. He makes it. Christ upholds all things by the word of his power, Hebrews 1-2. Were Jesus to remove his hand of providence, everything would cease to exist just as quickly as it came into, a, into being. Do you feel the weight of that? If he removed his hand of providence, everything would collapse and go into nothingness in a, in a moment, just like that. Instantaneously. And because creation and providence go hand in hand, we can conclude that man is never, at any point in his life, none of you are ever independent of God. Ever. Sinful men are never in a position 
to emancipate themselves from God's sovereign authority. The structure of creation, it's complete, it's immovable, because all of creation adheres to the law of God and the power of God's word. Your brain, your neural functions, your heartbeat, your lymphatic system, everything is happening in your Bible, in, in your body, because of God doing it. God is the one who upholds it every single day. But we know that sin enters in. One, once man believes himself to be free from this alleged grip of a so-called capricious God, he still lives and moves and has his being thanks to the grace of God. And rather than bowing down and submitting himself to the authority and the sovereignty of, the, of God and our God and King, sinners would rather posit an impersonal random universe where he's supposedly free from, from God's eyes and thus God's law order. Men would rather have apes as grandparents than repent of their sin. But as we see here in Genesis 1-1, there's no escaping the truth of God's sovereign governance. Genesis 1-1 is the heading for the entire creation story. It establishes the kingdom of God and God's supremacy as the self-existent one. It tells us that time, space, and matter are inextricably tied together and that each comes into being because God and God alone has the power to do so. Genesis 1-1 is a terror for the lost. It's a comfort for those found in Christ. All things are in his hand. And for the rebel, what could be more dangerous than that? And that should be a great comfort to you, dear Christian, to know that uh, your life is in the hands of an extraordinarily loving and gracious God. And thus we rejoice in God's creative power. We rejoice that in the gospel message, Christ has come to assert the priority and the supremacy of God, to bring sinners like us to himself, to forgive sins and make us new so that we might go forth into every area of life proclaiming the crown rights of King Jesus. Ponder anew what the Lord and the Almighty can do. He sustains you and upholds you every single day. Father, we pray and ask for your blessing, Lord, as we have looked to your word and we have sought so much we have plunged the depths of your power, your sovereignty, your character, your nature. Uh, it's a remarkable thing to try to contemplate you, the infinite God, to think through the ramifications of creation, to, to think through the ramifications of, of your glory and honor in this world. And I pray that you would bring your church, your people, to a renewed understanding of the word that we would insist upon it, that we would live our lives based upon it. Help us, Holy Spirit, to take what we've heard, to apply it, and for it to be something that we keep with us each and every day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.